You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Phil Anderson tells a story in his book, Running on Empty, that apparently circulated around Wrightsville, North Carolina for a while. It's about a guy who comes down south from New York City. He's an investment banker, and he's standing on a pier, and he happens to see a, a boat come in, fisherman, and New Yorker strikes up a conversation with the man, and he sees he's caught a few uh, yellow, t- yellow uh, tail tuna, and says, "Hey, how long you been out?" Guys, on a few hours. And uh, New York says, "Well, um, what do you do with the rest of your day?" The guy goes, "Well, you know, I fish a little bit, you know, sort of sleep in, take naps with my wife, uh, walk into town, play the guitar with friends, drink some wine, go to bed." And the New Yorker the banker says, "You know." Let me give you some advice. If you would stay out a little bit longer and catch more fish, you could use the extra money to buy another boat, a bigger boat. And if you use that bigger boat to stay out longer and go out farther, then you could, you could sell even more fish and buy a whole fleet of boats. That's really, yeah, you, just, you, you could, then uh, what you could do is you could be selling enough to make enough money to own your own cannery, do your own distribution. Uh, you'd probably have to move to a ur- large urban area, but from there you could launch this fishing enterprise that spans the world. And, uh, goes, well, how long would that take? It'd probably take about 15 or 20 years, but then comes the best part. Then you offer an IPO and, uh, you just take in millions of dollars. And the fisherman goes, well, well, then what would I do? And he goes, oh, that's when. You know, you'd leave your apartment in New York and you'd go to some sleepy little fishing village and you'd sleep in and you'd fish a little bit and you'd take walks with your wife, drink some wine and play guitar with friends. It's a story that makes us wonder, you know, what are we doing when we're making a living? What's it all about? It's an important question. It's a question that God cares very much about, although oftentimes... Uh, We think that God's most interested in preachers and pulpits and what happens in rooms like this. I hear someone say that that, uh, it's my father's world and that he cares about everything that happens out there. And uh, that includes our work and what we do from Monday to Saturday. And Jesus tells a story uh, that gives us some perspective on on our work. I want to share it with you this morning. But before I do, note that Jesus introduces a story with a warning. He says... Take care. Take care. He gives us a warning against something. That word, take, phrase, take care, is very strong. It says, take positive action against. Because what Jesus warns us about is probably uh, the single greatest competitor to the kingdom of God in the world today, certainly in America. Take care. Be, take positive action against what, Jesus? Well, our translation calls it greed. And you go, oh, well, thank heavens, that doesn't affect me. But the, the Greek word greed actually is a compound word of two very simple words, have more. It's the pursuit of more. Take positive action against the pursuit of more, Jesus says. And so let, let's look at this story. Uh, would you pull out your Bible to Luke chapter 12 and open up to uh, verse 13. Luke 12 We'll read together verses 13 through 21. You'll find that on page 847 of the Pew Bible. And let's stand together and read aloud. We're going to read from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 down through 21. 
And after we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you think it might be true, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, friend, who sent me to be a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Well, it's not very often that you hear God say to someone, you fool. Uh, but he does so in this story. It's just a story. Uh, this story comes from the wisdom tradition, where we have these stock characters, you know, the wise and the fool, the righteous and the unrighteous, the, uh, the sluggard, you know, and the, and the industrious. And uh, So it, it, we get this black and white picture to make things very clear. We also call this particular kind of parable a, an exemplary narrative. That is, it gives an example of how we should live uh, like the Good Samaritan, only this exemplary narrative is a negative one. It gives us an example of how not to live. And sometimes that's the best way to tell someone how to do something. is by telling them how not to do something. And that's what Jesus does here. He says, take guard. Be on your watch. And uh, this is folly. Well, I, I like to think of this text as Jesus' four easy steps to becoming a rich fool. So that will be my outline for the sermon. Four easy steps to becoming a rich fool. You know, admit it, when you think about the phrase rich fool, it's got kind of a ring to it, doesn't it? Rich fool. I know I've been called worse. Uh, but there, so there are four easy steps that Jesus gives if you want to go that, that way. And the first one is this, get rich. Now, I'm sorry that Jesus doesn't give us very much help with this first point. He really doesn't. Um, we start out with a man in the story who's already rich. Uh, we see here in, in um, uh, verse... Uh, just shout it out. Uh, one of the verses... And, and it says that all of a sudden, the land produced a great crop. So three things quickly to notice about the way the story begins and the riches that come. First of all, land in this story is business. Okay, this is not a backyard or a cooperative garden in, in Ballard. This is uh, agribusiness. Uh, the land is like a stock to convert it for us, off of which one would get a dividend. Right? So they own the land. These people are not trading land. They're holding the land. It's an inheritance that God has given in Palestine. And, but the land produces uh, crops. 
and you sell those crops every year, and that's your income. Okay, so this land is good for cash flow. Uh, it's business. And the second thing to notice is that land is very special in Palestine. Uh, it's a, a divine land grant. God, by covenant with through Moses with the people of Israel, had guaranteed them the abundance of this land. So it's it's land that God stands behind and says, this land will be productive for you. And the third thing to notice about this is that there's nothing wrong with what happens in this story. Jesus, with the way he tells the story, gives us no indication that, uh, that this man does anything wrong. You know, money just happens sometimes. And, and that's what's happened here. Apparently, uh, it's been a good year for the crops, and the crops have, what, I don't know, doubled, tripled, quadrupled. Like if you have a stock, you know, in another company, and all of a sudden you get a huge dividend, you haven't done anything wrong, right? You, you just got a lot of money. You came into a more. And I think that the purpose of this is to Jesus say, you know, the problem isn't really with much. The problem is with more. It's the drive for more uh, that gets this man in trouble. It makes, makes him a fool uh, by the end of the story. And so, you know, if you don't happen to have the problem of much in your life, uh, you, you don't actually qualify by anyone's definition of rich, and you, but you still want to get something out of the rest of the sermon, you can think of yourself as a poor fool. I know it doesn't have quite the same cachet to it, but it'll still work for the rest of the message. So uh, the first step is you've got to get rich or want to be rich, okay? And then the second step is this, uh, discount your neighbor. Discount your neighbor. We see in verse 17 that what perhaps we might have thought about as an opportunity begins to become a problem for this man. And he thought to himself, what should I do? Notice uh, this problem will be the problem that will define his work, his labor, for the rest of the story. And we find out later for the rest of his life, he'll be trying to solve this problem. What shall I do uh, with this more? Right? So what does he do? Well... He's going to tear down barns, and he's going to build new barns. Now, a guy who has barns to tear down and wants to build new barns that are even bigger is not probably a construction guy. You know? So the story doesn't tell us anything about this, but apparently he's going to go out and hire a bunch of his neighbors. He's going to engage them in work. He's got now an enterprise uh, to build more barns for himself, and it's going to take a lot of people to do so. And if those laborers were to step back and ask, what am I doing? What's the purpose of my work? What would their answer have to be? Well, what's the deliverable on this project? We we find out in verse 19, it's so one person can say to his soul, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what their work is all about. One person. Many people leveraging all that they are for one person's personal enjoyment. Now, we get an indication of how Jesus feels about this and the way that he tells the story. Because in verses 17 through 19, the first person singular pronoun is repeated uh, 12 times in, in the original language. Four times we're going to hear the word my, and eight times we're going to hear the word I. Well, this work is all about me, Jesus wants us to see. We've discounted our neighbors now. We've rendered them the means of our own self-aggrandizement. And now we begin to see the connection of the story to the original dispute 
Right? What provokes this story? Why does Jesus tell? Well, there are two brothers in the crowd, we read in verse 13, who are far, they're arguing with each other. They're really in a business negotiation over the family inheritance, which would have been land. Someone has died and has left this land behind. And I don't know if they're negotiating where the boundary marker goes or where the produce for the year goes. But this is, again, about the family business. And they're arguing with one another. And they're saying, I, my interests are not being respected by you. And your interests, you're telling me, are not being respected by myself. When we have that kind of a dispute, what do we do? We find ourselves before a judge. A judge is somebody who mediates the interests between two parties. And they reach out to Jesus as a judge. They say, hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And Jesus says, so you see me as a judge. Let me tell you a story. And in his story, true enough, I think if we read between the lines, we see the first-person pronouns and read the invisibility of the neighbors. They must be there. But notice in the mind and the psyche of, of this rich fool, The neighbors aren't even present to him. He so devalued them, he doesn't even see them. And yet, Jesus says, can you see that this is injustice? This is really a a justice issue. And, and, And work that is rich toward God is work that fosters justice in the world, that seeks the interests of all people. But this is folly, this work, and it's work that seeks the interests, really, of only one person. So the second step is to discount your neighbor. The third is to discount yourself. Discount yourself. That seems weird. I mean, is that what this guy is doing? He's put himself in the center of the universe, you know, as as I say, the Georgiocentric universe, where everything sort of revolves around myself. How is it that he could also devalue himself in the same time he's devaluing others? Are you that surprised by that? Or have you noticed that sometimes the most insecure people in life are often the people who play those insecurities out in taking advantage of and abusing the people around them? And so we have a way of um, telling us this. One of the narratives in the story of more is a, is a little narrative, a game we play with children. We say to kids, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which at first is a really fun question, right? Kids say all kinds of stuff. You know, of course, I want to be a rock star, uh, trash collector, you know, drive the big truck and everything. One of our kids, when we asked, what do you want to be when they grow up? They said, I want to be a window washer on the great skyscrapers. But I just want to do the first floors. <laughs> and I say, oh, that's good. You know, it's full of potential. We want to, we want to hear them dream, right? Uh, so we asked that question, but, with time, the question becomes gradually more and more oppressive, right? I mean, imagine freshman year in college, you know, and at a cocktail party, everybody asks you, well, what are you going to major in, you know? And you go, I don't know, I just got here. I, you know, I've been doing sports and, you know, shooting spit wads with my roommate. What's major? And, <laughs> and then, you know, you get a junior or senior year and they go, what are you going to do when you graduate? And you go, geez, you know, I, I really have no idea. You're talking about a job, right? I, I just, I don't know. And then when we introduce ourselves to one another, we say, hi, I'm George. What do you do? Right? Do you see how quickly we have devalued ourselves? We fear that we have to justify our existence in relationship to some economy, some system of buying and exchanging and trading goods. Is that how we want to know who we are? And Jesus points this out uh, to us in the story through irony. 
Because listen to how this man speaks to himself, how he dresses himself. He probably thinks of himself as, as a rich man, not a rich fool. And so we'd expect when he speaks to himself, we'd say, hey, rich man. But he doesn't. By the way, Luke is, uh, gives us always this interior dialogues. That's what we see in the Gospel of Luke. We get inside of people's heads. And here in verse 19, we hear what this man says to himself. And surprisingly, he says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. Now, that's a strange way to address you. If you ever call yourself soul, well, they didn't really do that in the first century either. What Jesus is pointing out is this guy is entirely missing who he is. See, he sees himself as a functionary, within, as a cog within the factory of this economy, not in relationship to God. The same word soul is repeated in verse 20. You fool, this very night your soul is being demanded of you. They want your soul back, is what Jesus says. They want it back. It's as though it's been on loan. It's as though who you are has come from God and goes back to God. And don't you ever forget who you are. You, you, you know, you, you may be a consult. You may consult, but you, are you going to be a consultant? You may parent, but are you going to be a parent? You may, be an, uh, uh, you may do engineering, but are you an engineer? So you may teach, but are you a teacher? At the end of the day, is it your job that defines who you are? Or do you want to say like Mary, who, yes, she was a parent, did not define herself by that task? First time the word soul comes into this gospel, lips of Mary when she said the mother of Jesus... She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. See, my soul is great because of the greatness of God who loves me. It's expansive. And yet somehow in the grind of this man's work, in the pursuit of more, his soul has shrunk down to the smallest possible shape. Glenn... uh, Pizza LaRusso was a subprime lender, owned a subprime lending business. And NPR did an interview back in the spring with him about, you know, the people that caused the crisis. And then they went back uh, about six months later and started to follow up with some of these people. And I was interested in his story, so I went to his blog. And this is what I read. This guy, um, he was making $100,000 a month. A month. He was uh, going to nightclubs in New York City, buying $1,000 bottles of crystal champagne next to celebrities, driving five cars that he owned, owned two houses. He was riding uh, the high life. And uh, here's what he writes on his blog, though. After seven long years of 60-plus hour work weeks, I had achieved what I had set out to accomplish, success. You see, I grew up in an affluent community. Our neighbors were doctors and lawyers with kids who went to private schools. Money and status defined success for me, and by my definition, success was all around. Now I was worthy to take part in its communion. Then I lost everything. A victim of the financial mess I'd helped to create my houses, gone. Cars, gone. Bank account, gone. Success, gone. How could this happen? The success I had sacrificed so much of who I was to achieve simply disappeared. In the weeks and months following the financial crash, I went from highly employable to another subprime guy. Many companies specifying not to apply if you had subprime experience. They were the worst months of my life. And oddly enough, so far, these same months have been the best. 
I watched as my healthy bank account slowly evaporated, repossessions, foreclosures, unemployment denied, a downward spiral ending in financial ruin. I should have been terrified, but for some reason, I was calm, collected, happy even. The enormous cloud of uncertainty was slowly disappearing and allowing the sun to shine in on my life. I began to realize the things I had been so naive to overlook, my children, my health, the love of a godly woman, and some of the greatest friends on the planet. I, I was truly blessed. And the best part of it, this was all free. There, whether my paycheck had six zeros or two, the dream of success I once had was radically transformed. There's a word for that in the first century. It's not a judge, but it's a slave. A slave is somebody whose identity is shaped by the value that somebody else takes. And as much as we are offended by the injustice of our own work when we take a good look at it, we are also offended by the way in which our work reduces who we are to servitude. So go ahead, Jesus says, if you want uh, treasure on earth to be poor towards God, discount yourself. But Jesus says, really, take care, friends. Take positive action against the pursuit of more. Be warned. There's a vicious, vicious cycle in this. You see, if I, if I devalue myself, then I will go to get more value. And I'll go to get more value from my neighbor at risk of subsuming their interests to my own and, and perpetuating some kind of injustice that if I really thought about it, I'd be ashamed of. Doing that will require me to work harder and harder, longer days and hours, and I'll have less of myself and more to work for. So Jesus says, take positive action against, how can I? I seem to be a victim of this cycle. How could we ever break out? And then we come to the fourth step. The fourth step of becoming a rich fool is to discount the work of Jesus. But of course, the advice of the gospel is to do the exact opposite. You see, Jesus is the one who is the judge. Jesus is the one who comes to say, your sin is wrong. And all the failure in our work, even those things that we don't recognize, he says, it's wrong. And I judge it. I stand against it. But he's also the one who comes in the form of a servant who says, I will pay, I will bear the judgment of all of your sin, all of your brokenness, all of your failure, all of your injustice on the cross, because I'm a servant who can put your interests even ahead of my own. Jesus says to you, do you believe this? Do you receive my kingdom? It's what the world needs, a judge Slave. That's what Paul wrote about in Philippians 2 when he said, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. The story really turns, the turning point comes at the end with a question that God asks of this laborer. Verse 20, he says, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What will be your inheritance? Everything that you have poured yourself into, that to which... Uh, you have enslaved yourself. What value now as you leave planet Earth? It's a question, of course, that the rich fool cannot answer. But Jesus invites you and me to have an answer to that question. And here's how. Remember, at the beginning of the story, two brothers are arguing. Well, this is not the first time two brothers have argued in Palestine. Uh, two Israelites, in fact, back in the days of Moses, Moses comes upon in Egypt uh, two perhaps brothers, two Hebrews who are arguing with one another. And Moses steps in to try to mediate and, and bring some justice. Moses was a judge. And yet, what they say to him is, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? It's the very same question that Jesus asks the rich ruler. He does so to call to their attention that he is, in fact, a judge. He comes to bring justice. And we say, oh, we don't really like talk of Jesus as judge. It sounds so harsh and negative. Well, not if you've been the victim of injustice. And some of you have been. Some of you know what it's like to be taken advantage of. And you long for the day that someone will come and make it all right. And Jesus says, that's what I'm doing. That's part of why I'm here. But the way that I'm doing it is through service. And friends, that's what our work does as well. The kingdom of God has come to us if we believe in Jesus Christ. Not only does it come to us, but Jesus invites us into that same coming kingdom through our labors to participate in the work of justice that he's doing in the world, to participate in his loving service and self-giving sacrifice to people around us. That's the turning point. At the end of the story, Jesus implies that we can be rich toward God because of his grace. Rich toward God. Later on in the chapter, he refers to treasure in heaven. Be, be clear about this. What we think treasure in heaven means commonly is that it's a piggy bank in, in the clouds that whenever I do a good thing, God puts another nickel in there. And when I get to heaven at some point in the future, I'm going to get to spend that money. That is not the biblical idea of treasure in heaven. By the way, nobody spends their money in a treasure. The, the, the treasure is not where you spend the money. The treasure is where you get the money from. You see what's happening here? Jesus is saying, just as Moses promised you predictivity that came forth from the earth, I, bringing you a new covenant, promise you productivity that comes from the heavenly earth. People who have treasure in heaven are landowners in heaven who have an equity that pays dividend in their lives. You can draw on this heavenly bank account in your work. You can bring forth justice and service in what you do. Well, you've done a lot of praying uh, this week. Lord, may your kingdom come. May things be done on earth as they are in heaven. And you wonder, how does God answer that prayer? 
We've been praying for the American Samoans, and one of the stories that caught my attention was just a simple little bit, but it was about seven people who were trapped in the rubble, isolated. And you can bet they were praying. But the thing that interests me is, how did God choose to answer that prayer? And if you caught the story, you know what it was? Somebody there had had a cell phone with enough battery left to text message their location, and they were rescued. And I thought, how did God answer that prayer? Well, there's, there was somebody somewhere along the way that invented a kind of a dye and a resin compound to make the cover of that cell phone. There was somebody along the way whose work raised financing for the transportation needed to distribute the materials that were built by the laborers who built the cell towers. Someone along the way had educated the people who grew up to invent the kind of tools and and the gauze and the medical supplies that were necessary to save these people once they found them. Do you get the point? Jesus, when he invited his disciples to this table, he said to them, let me tell you who's really great on the face of this planet. Those who learn to serve, they're the greatest. Take your example from me. Those who seek to find their life will lose it, but those who seek to lose their life for my sake will gain it. And he says to you, and yet you all, you 12, will be judges sitting on 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. Jesus delegates his judicial authority to us, and he makes it so that justice can come through our work. God will answer our prayer that we just prayed this morning. Thy kingdom come as you and I go to work tomorrow morning. Let's give him thanks. What a mystery it is that you want to make us rich in relationship to you. That you love us so much that you would warn us from that which appears to be more to us that becomes less in our lives. And more than warning us, you've invited us into your service, into your justice. Lord, we pray for the person on our left and the person on our right. We grant that whether they have a job in the home, whether they have a job in an office somewhere, on a road, in a field, or whether they're just seeking a job, that you will grant your kingdom comes through something they do at work tomorrow. And may the glory be to Jesus Christ, who is magnified in our souls. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.